0: Welcome to the Ether Review. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. The Ether Review is a podcast about the applications of blockchain technology, from big business to governments to the software that powers our cars. This new iteration of the internet affects every part of our lives. By speaking to the people who work in this emerging field, we aim to decrypt this new technology and distribute the future that is already here. The Ether Review is sponsored by Consensus Systems, a blockchain venture production studio that uses Ethereum technology to build decentralized applications. To find out more, visit consensus.net. That's C O N S E N S Y S.net. Or for cutting edge commentary on the blockchain and decentralization space, check out consensusmedia.net. Today, I'm joined by David Sensteber, co-founder of IOTA. Thanks for joining me, David. Thanks for having me, Arthur. So, David, could you please give us a bit of background about yourself, apart from your relationship with IOTA?
1: For sure. So, my journey into the realm of distributed ledger slash blockchain technology slash internet of things can be traced back to my teens, essentially, when I got really interested in futurism and futurology, kind of like the study of future technology. And I remember I was part of these groups called the Everything List and Overcoming Bias, Less Wrong, Long City, which had these very stimulating discussions about artificial intelligence, the future of automation and how it would impact society and so on and so forth. And this was also the area where Wei Dai and Hal Finney, etc. A lot of these legends kind of hung around. So I was exposed to this technology quite early on. But it wasn't until 2012 that I actually dug into the fundamentals of the technology and realized that, hey, this is not just transactions for niche applications. This is actually something that can be applied to a lot more fascinating areas. So ever since then, I pretty much started working full time in the blockchain realm. In 2013, I joined forces with a guy called Sergei Vanchelo. So Sergei Cheglo he invented the full proof of stake. So in fact, the algorithms that Ethereum is hoping to port (laughs) to later on, he was the guy behind that. At the time he was a lead developer and founder of the NXT project. And that's when I also met Dominic Sheener, one of Modo co-founders. He was working on creating this bridge between the fiat world and the blockchain world, because as you recall back then, it was almost impossible to buy tokens compared to the situation is today. And that's also where we met uh, Sergey Popov, the math professor. So we are the four founders of the IOTA project.
0: And Sergei Popov authored the white paper, right?
1: Yeah, he is the author of the white paper. He is a tremendous mathematician, or as I like to call him, a math magician, because some of the formulas that these guys <laughs> on that level come up with is, is a bit hard to digest.
0: Math magician, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so who did you say was the founder and lead developer of Next? NXT, sorry?
1: Uh, yeah, so so that's Sergei Vanceglo. He's better known by his moniker Come From Beyond.
0: Does he know who the guy BC Next was?
1: Yeah, he, it was him. Was it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no way. <laughs> it, it's legal to say that now. Like Back then, I think only I knew it, but now, uh, yeah. it It just sort of became this issue where it had to come out. The truth had to come out
0: wow this is a mystery like this is like a mystery being solved i have no idea and you do it so casually you just lift the veil
1: (laughs) yeah we don't like to hype things around iota we tend to be very pragmatic and down to earth about what's actual rather than hyping things up so we do it casually it's
0: interesting you use that term pragmatic because that's exactly how i described the
1: design of iota to a friend recently oh nice yeah, and and that's that's kind of the entire engineering philosophy and design philosophy behind IOTA is to create something that actually works for the real world. So, you know, a lot of these different distributed ledger projects like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on, they often have origins in different ideological positions, and that's fine. But it sometimes affects, and in, at least in my opinion, negatively the engineering decisions. Whereas in IOTA, the founders and the community, all of us have different ideologies, different ideas, but we keep that shit separate from the actual protocol. We just want something that can actually scale and work in the real world. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Hey, I just had a thought. What was the guy's name? Sorry. BC Next guy.
1: Sergey Ivan Shaglo.
0: Does Sergei know who JL777 was?
1: So actually, I think I know better who he is because This goes way back. This was like early 2014. I remember having a lot of interaction with him. And so I would say I do have a very good idea of his identity, but I don't feel like it's appropriate for me to say anything about it because I think he wishes to remain anonymous. We don't tend to see eye to eye on a lot of things, but when it comes to his privacy, I will respect it regardless.
0: For the audience, BC Next was the mysterious founder of NXT, and JL777 was this brilliant developer who developed a whole bunch of cool services to run on the NXT platform, one of which was SuperNet, which is all the rage these days. Although it may be, I'm not really fully sure the story of SuperNet, and we're also really straying from (laughs) a discussion of IOTA.
1: Yeah, no problem. No, so... You know, when it comes to SuperNet, I always stayed away from it simply because it didn't adhere to my pragmatic principles. Like, I I completely agree that JL777 is a tremendous developer. He is definitely very brilliant uh, in that aspect. But when it comes to, like, real-life applications and so on and so forth, I just didn't see it, so I stayed the fuck away from it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It seemed like a nice idea.
1: Well, yeah, especially when you go back to 2014 when... All of this was just experimentation like it it was way before all of this was like a hundred billion dollar market so at the time i guess people just found it interesting and they put their funds into it And they've definitely created some interesting technology but my main concern is again that it's not focused on the real world enough for me to get involved so bringing
0: this into the real world can you give us an idea about what iota is and how its design decisions Reflect real-world use
1: cases. Oh yeah, for sure. So if we go back to 2014 again, we started getting, and when I say we, I mean of course me, Dominic, uh, Sergey, and Sergey. We started getting heavily into the Internet of Things and focusing on distributed computing and these actual use cases. And of course, due to our blockchain expertise and background, it was very natural to try to marry those two technologies and see, for instance, how can we incentivize distributed computing? How can we incentivize sharing of uh, data or other technological resources? But the problem became very obvious to us in the fact that blockchain simply doesn't scale. And it also has a lot of problems with high fees, which makes a lot of these use cases that we have in mind prohibitive let me just give you one simple example if you are a sensor gathering data and you want to sell this data to a computational station somewhere else then if you want to do this in real time fine granular fashion most likely these data packets will only be worth like 0.01 cent or something like that and if you were to use like Bitcoin or Ethereum for that, you would have to pay like $100,000 fee to get that transaction confirmed. And that makes absolutely no business sense whatsoever. So those use cases have been prohibited from actually existing. And so we started thinking, okay, the blockchain clearly doesn't work. So we have to come up with a new architecture that retains the principles, i.e. decentralization, immutability, and those kinds of principles, but at the same time actually works. So this led to the idea of using a directed iCyclic graph rather than this sequential chain of blocks. Just think of it like a graph where it's actually growing. So just like kind of like a tree branching, I think everyone has seen a graph before. That is a two dimensional realm rather than this one dimension of a blockchain. So we got rid of the blocks entirely. We got rid of the rigid chain entirely. And then apply this directed acyclic graph in a manner that we call tangle. And the reason we call it a tangle is that the transactions are literally tangled with each other. And if you look at it from a, you probably saw that in the white paper, like if you look at it, it looks like a tangle because it literally is tangled together. So
0: essentially a directed acyclic graph is a set of relationships that are unidirectional, meaning that. You start from one transaction, and that transaction is connected to by subsequent transactions, which are connected to by subsequent transactions. But the connection never circles around. The relationship is always one way, meaning the original never references anything new.
1: Yeah, exactly. So a graph, you have the nodes, and then you connect the nodes, like you just said, in the manner that you just said. When you use this directed iCyclic graph architecture, at least the implementation that we have in IOTA. You get rid of this problem in the blockchain. So in order to explain this, let me step one step back and contrast it to blockchain. So in blockchain, you essentially have decoupled validation of the network from usage of the network, which gives rise to two parties. You have the users and then you have the validators. And their incentives are diametrically opposed in a sense, because me as a user in blockchain, the only thing I care about is that my transaction gets confirmed as fast as possible. Whereas as a validator, the only thing I care about is making the most money. That's why I'm in this game. That's my role as a validator. I want to get the block rewards and I want to collect the fees. And due to the blockchain being constructed in such a way that you have a limited quantity of transactions that you can put into each block and a limited amount of blocks that you can validate, you end up with this traditional law of supply and demand kind of economic model where I, as a validator, I will only include a transaction that has the highest fee because that's how I get the best profit margins. This is what we're seeing all the time. Whenever there is high volume on the blockchain, the fees skyrocket and the networks get very congested. IOTA, in contrast, you as a user, you're also the validator. So there is no miners, there is no separate validators. So when you issue a transaction, you validate two previous transactions in the graph. And this means that there is no other party to compensate. So there is no fee involved in this transaction whatsoever. And that in itself is very beautiful because now validation has become an intrinsic property of utilizing the network. So the value has been transferred over to utility. And of course that is, in my opinion, the best kind of value when you have actual utility. And the other issue that this resolves directly is centralization. So in blockchain you have a lot of centralization so even though it's herald kind of as the epitome of decentralization blockchain tends to centralize around resources that's why we have mining pools staking pools and so on and so forth because that makes economic sense it's just the incentives that are inherent to blockchain architecture in iota there is no such incentive so there is no centralization around resources instead The entire network is just comprised of these endless amounts of validators and users that are kind of one-to-one relationship between them so that gets rid of the fees that gets rid of the centralization and then we come to the third point which is especially today a very very hot topic which is the scalability because due to the big icos that is occurring right now on the ethereum network the network is fucking useless like it doesn't work whatsoever I mean, exchanges has to halt trading, people high up in the system of Ethereum, they they go out urging people not to use the network, et cetera, which is terrible when you think about it. So scalability is the hot topic right now. And the way that we resolve that issue is that because there is no finite limit to how many transactions that can occur per second in a network. Instead, what happens is that as you issue a transaction, you validate two previous transactions, meaning that the more usage occurring on the network, the more validation occurs on the network. And since there is no block, since there is no limit, instead, there is this graph, it can grow infinitely. Like there is no inherent limit to how much validation can occur per second in IOTA. It's all dependent on the usage of IOTA. Of course, excluding bandwidth, like at the end of the day, the laws of physics kicks in and you have to abide by the laws of physics. But beyond that, there is no limit to how much it can scale.
0: But there are some limitations to the security of the network.
1: Mm, Depends. Uh, There's a lot of misinformation or misunderstanding around consensus in IOTA. but, but, But I would love to hear if you have some specific concern.
0: Well, to me, it seems like we haven't actually talked about the weighting of the transactions. And how one prevents double spending or state alterations.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Again, visual aid would be great here. But <laughs> hopefully by now people can at least visualize in their head this graph that is growing. So each transaction that is issued in a network references two previous transactions in the network. And again, those two transactions, of course, reference their own respective two transactions and so on and so on and so on. Right? Right so when you issue a completely new transaction that is of course not confirmed yet because no other transactions is referencing it so these transactions that are being referenced are again being referenced by some other new transactions so as more new transactions op- occur they indirectly get referenced more and more and more and more so you have this random walk marco chain monte carlo algorithm that you run this tip selection algorithm as we call it When you run that tip selection algorithm, you can see how much of the network is referencing your transaction. So for instance, if you run it 100 times and you see that 50% of the times that you run it, you have 50% of the network confirming it, you may not want to accept that transaction yet. So you have this heuristic, just like you have in, in blockchain, where you don't accept the transaction until there's been three blocks confirming it. It's the exact same thing in IOTA.
0: What about, say I spin up? A 1,000 nodes or a million nodes on my computer, and I just flood the network with transactions that confirm a double-spending transaction, essentially.
1: Okay, so this is why we have a small amount of of proof-of-work involved in the transaction. The reason for that is exactly what you're saying here, this anti-Sybil mechanism, this uh, attack mechanism. So if you were to set up, let's say you set up 10,000 nodes, first thing you would have to do was to find other nodes to connect to, like genuine nodes to connect to. That would take you ages to get 10,000 nodes to actually have other neighboring nodes that are honest, genuine nodes. So that's the first hurdle that you would have to overcome. The second one would be the proof of work that you actually carry out this proof of work on the 10,000 nodes, which would be extremely expensive compared to whatever you were trying to attack. But even if you were to to attempt this attack and even if you get all of these nodes set up and you get to connect to all of the network you still would not be able to disrupt the network theoretically you may be able to attack some edge node that is not referenced by the rest of the network like a, a small partition or something but in reality what would happen is simply that your fake transaction so to speak would strengthen the rest of the tangle so this actually happened two days ago that someone tried to attack the network with 300 percent hashing power And all that happened was Tangle absorbed it and the network got more secure and more efficient. So the Tangle is inherently resistant to such attacks. Actually, we encourage spam on the network because it strengthens the network.
0: It just, it seems like you would need the network to be so huge. You would need so many connected Internet of Things devices in order to defeat the mining power of A single shed in Iceland, you
1: know? Yeah, no, no, I completely understand the concern. So, in order to kind of elucidate this further, so at the moment we are having this checkpointing coordinator that is just making sure that the network isn't being attacked by this 31% that all distributed ledger consensus is susceptible to. And this is what we call training wheel period. Just like Satoshi set up his first miners, just like the Ethereum core set up a lot of miners in the beginning, just to get the network rolling so that's the current state so at the moment this coordinator would simply not give checkpoints to these malevolent transaction but to answer your questions in regard to like when the coordinator is shut off, which is of course the entire goal to have a completely running network that is self-sustainable the issue is that it seems like it would be very easy to attack the network with like you said (laughs) a small database But in reality, it isn't like that, because the way that we perceive this is that each individual IoT device will have a application-specific integrated circuit, i.e. an ASIC for hashing of the IOTA hash function. So I have to reiterate or emphasize here that this hash function and the hasher is not like in Bitcoin. So it's a lot more like hash cash than the hashing you do in ethereum and bitcoin for mining it's nowhere near as intensive so it's not like this asic would be huge it would be a few thousand logic gates like it wouldn't add any extra cost or space requirement to any chip so this means that you attacking from a regular database with regular processors would have absolutely no chance because this is so many hundreds orders of magnitudes more efficient than a regular processor or a GPU that it simply would not work.
0: But also we're talking about adding a new hardware component to IOTA enabled devices.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that is definitely part of the vision here. Like, In order for the Internet of Things to actually have a distributed ledger for payments and data integrity, you need to accommodate this in the hardware and this seems excessive and it seems like a big assumption to assume that the hardware manufacturer will take this into account but then you start to think about it like why wouldn't they like this is the new age of technology like you have to accommodate for it or else your processors become obsolete it's just like back in the 80s and 90s you had this dedicated floating point unit processing element that was put into the processors in order to do these floating point math calculations. And as that became a standard, they simply integrated it. Today, it's a complete regular part of the processor. No one even thinks about it. Or let's take another more perhaps simple example to get your head around. Think about mobiles. Let's go back to the 90s and the the beautiful Nokias and the early 2000s with the indestructible Nokias. Back then, you didn't really have a lot of graphics to display. So you could run this on the regular microprocessor that was within a mobile but as the user interface grew as the user experience demand grew and gaming complexity etc grew then of course you integrated a graphic processing unit into the system of chip it's just how hardware has always evolved to accommodate the software software is always a step ahead of the hardware in this regard because that is what drives what is underlying the hardware what are the use cases and if we want this payment settlement mechanism between machines, if we want to be able to guarantee data integrity from uh, data generated by sensors, et cetera, there is no choice but to have a dedicated component to do this. And again, I want to reiterate that it's not like an ASIC that most blockchain enthusiasts would think of because we, in the blockchain realm, we are used to seeing ASICs as these huge mining rigs, like these expensive, insanely energy consuming (laughs) uh, circuitry but but that's not the case like this would literally not even take up you wouldn't even be able to see it with your naked eye and it wouldn't even affect electrical consumption in any costly fashion at all
0: it still seems like like iota would work without
1: this oh yeah like iota already works without it there is no doubt iota already outperforms all other public distributed ledgers we already achieved over 400 confirmed transactions per second. And that was just a optimization test. It wasn't even a test to see, hey, how much can we get up to with these 180 nodes? It was just to optimize the client. So it was just experimental. In IOTA, like I mentioned, there is no fundamental limit. So we see thousands of transactions per second being a reality way before any hardware component comes into the picture.
0: I just question how scientifically understood such a strange and alien novel system like iota
1: is and how sure we can be of its security properties sure sure I, i completely understand that that concern but to those people that have that concern i would simply tell them to read the white paper play around with the system read the code and you will like in the beginning there is some I would say cognitive dissonance because it seems kind of too good to be true and that you're still stuck in the blockchain mentality because that's the architecture that we are used to. So in the beginning, it seems like, hey, this allows for double spends. Hey, this doesn't make complete sense to me. But as you dig a bit deeper and you get over those kind of biases, you realize that IOTA is extremely simple. It's extremely basic and straightforward. So it's not like we have developed this insanely complex system. IOTA is way simpler, in my opinion, than a blockchain architecture. It's way more straightforward and way more efficient as a result of that. And again, I I hate to appeal to authority, but if I were to, I would also point to the fact that other people, very intelligent people that I respect have come up with this idea independently or as inspired by us and continue to do research on it because it is quite straightforward when you stop thinking in blockchain terms and start Thinking about, hey, this is actually a new architecture, but it's very simple. Can you be specific about what
0: idea other people are taking up and who those people are?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. A few months after we began development on IOTA, Sergio Demian Lerner, the CTO of Rootstock, he came up with this concept called DAG coin, Directed iCyclic Graph coin. And it was a white paper. It had a lot of the same ideas. He didn't go to the extreme length that we did. He still had blocks in his DAG, whereas we said, fuck those blocks. (laughs) We don't want any bottlenecks whatsoever. But he did it independently. He was not aware of our effort at this point. So he's one guy. You have the Spectra researchers in Israel working on a block DAG white paper. And I want to say that when you show the white paper to academics, when you show the white paper to blockchain enthusiasts, in the beginning, they may be skeptical, but so far, the reception that we've got over the last two years has, I would say 95% of them has been like, holy shit, this is brilliant. This actually works. And I think that's why the quick adoption has occurred.
0: How do you query the tangle? How do you find a piece of
1: information in there and where is it all stored? Oh yeah. So so this is very similar to the blockchain. It's not that alien from the blockchain. Like we have tangle explorers. I can actually link you to them afterwards so you can check them out. It's just the same process as in a blockchain. But the biggest difference is that okay, so let me ask you this. Are you familiar with the CAP theorem, the consistency, availability, partition tolerance theorem? Uh yes. Okay, perfect.
0: Let's let's go through it for the audience though.
1: For sure, for sure. So the CAP theorem And this is a very high-level, simple description. If you think of databases, let's say we have 10 databases, and you want to ensure that all of them have the exact same data. The, The latest write of the data is consistent across all of the databases. That is consistency part of it. That's the C of the CAP theorem. The availability is the ability to query this data at any time and check that, hey, yeah, indeed, the data is consistent across all of these databases. Uh, the P is standing for partition tolerance. So that means that if five of the databases were connected to some mesh net, while five of them were connected to another mesh net, then that's a partition or two partitions. And there is no way for you in the partition A to confirm that partition B is still consistent with Partition A, because you're, you're no longer connected. So it's very straightforward in that regard. And you know, in blockchain, you have these global states. So blockchains enforce this global state in order to guarantee that the consistency across the ledger or the databases, in my example here, are indeed consistent, right? And you have the availability. You can sync to the network whenever you want to. But a blockchain is partition intolerant in the sense that if you Disconnect the part of the network and continue to do transactions, then you end up on a fork that is no longer compatible or consistent with the other ones so blockchains tend to be Consistency and availability and very bad on the partition tolerant part whereas IOTA We favor partition tolerance and availability whereas the consistency is eventual The beauty of this is that it makes the IOTA network a lot more malleable, a lot more flexible. And this is extremely important in the Internet of Things because even though the Internet of Things has the word Internet within it, there is not that much Internet in the actual deployments because Internet and bandwidth is a scarce resource. So instead, what you will have in most of Internet of Things is mesh nets. You will see LoRa, you will see Bluetooth, ZigBee, C-Wave and so on and so forth in order to save battery life and you may only connect to the internet, the real main network, once or twice per day to relay some data. And this is not very good with a blockchain. On a blockchain, this means that this partition becomes a fork that is no longer compatible and you have to do a lot of extra work in order for that partition to then become valid again and sync to the blockchain. Whereas in IOTA, you can actually partition off from the main network into these clusters continue to transact, continue to ensure data integrity. And when you get internet connection again, it's simply interwoven naturally back into the tangle. And then you have the eventual consistency component.
0: Now, you said that the power consumption of this additional ASIC component is going to be really small, but the aggregate of the power consumption of all of those little ASIC components has to be greater than the aggregated power consumption of an attacker right or of all coordinating malicious attackers so yeah. so then in a sense you're you're still adding kind of the cost of running bitcoin mining to the power consumption of all of these internet of things devices you're just spreading it out very thinly but that's still the national grid of Ireland that has to be running in addition to what normally would be running in order to power all of these internet of things devices
1: so if I understood your argument correctly, it goes to this issue of the fee. The cost of running the hasher is the fee in a sense. You mean that the aggregate of all of this will still be quite expensive, right? That, that's kind of the argument. Yeah, I mean, at least
0: energy-wise. I understand that it's not going to cost anything to add it to the chip, and we can ignore the political challenge of convincing device manufacturers to add it because that's theoretically solvable, and certainly we can't make progress on that here. It's more that you're still adding the cost of defending the network or the energy consumption required to defend the network to the consumption of all these Internet of Things devices at a time when battery life is really significant, right? Like I have a case that I carry around with me. It's got my audio equipment in it and it has a GPS transmitter in there, but I have to recharge the damn thing every five days, (laughs) you know? So, and it's, it's bulky. And so, Battery life is a problem already, and this seems like adding an ASIC to the little devices is going to ultimately have a very significant effect on battery
1: life. Okay, so I completely understand that, but this goes back to the fact that when you think of ASICs, because of you being in the blockchain space, you tend to think of it with the image of these mining farms in mind.
0: No, but I am, and the reason I am is because those are the things that are going to be attacking the network.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. But but so the, the reason that I would say this is trivial is that for an individual device, like a singular device that has this hasher inside of it, it will not increase its power consumption in any measurable way whatsoever. Like it will be completely negligible. Let's say you have two identical devices, one with the hasher, one without it. They will have the exact same battery expectancy. No, they won't.
0: And I'll tell you why they won't. It's because in total, all of the ASIC Power consumption of a attacker needs to be rivaled by the ASIC power consumption of all of the Internet of Things devices in order for them combined. to be able to defend themselves. Yeah, c-
1: combined. So, so, so for sure, like combined, and and that's the very important differentiator. So it's not like each individual device has to match a attacker. It's the network as a whole. So when you start talking about billions of devices, the attacker has to match billions of devices.
0: So here's the thing. Sure they do, right? But I'm hammering on this for a very specific reason. You still have added to the Internet of Things ecosystem the power consumption of the attacker in the form of this additional ASIC component because it has to be able to fend off any plausible attack. Small, yes, and divided among them, absolutely. But nonetheless, what does this turn out to? You might wind up with a 10%, 15% reduction in battery life of a lot of these things, wouldn't you?
1: No, no. I actually reject that because the hashing in Bitcoin is driven to the extreme extents because of the economic incentive. Because there's this economic race to get the block rewards and the fees. So you have more and more and more and more complex ASICs, more and more energy consumption as a result. Whereas in IOTA, there is no such economic incentive. So... What you are postulating here, which is completely reasonable, is that an attacker decided to go out and buy, like, let's say, a billion ships, which are just ASICs to attack the IOTA network, and presuming that he can, for some reason, game the system sufficiently to earn a return on that investment that he would put up. But as we went over a bit earlier, when such an attack actually occurs, essentially the tangle absorbs that because even though you have this insane amount of hashing power, you still have to connect to all of the different nodes, which is why we have manual tethering. There is no automatic peer discovery, which would make such an attack more plausible. So I would say this is borderline impossible. And even let's just play devil's advocate here and say some insane guy actually went out, spent millions and millions of dollars To attempt to attack the network, he would only be able to intercept perhaps one or two or three microtransactions. So he's going out there, this attacker going out there, spending millions and millions of dollars in an attempt to desperately hope for interrupting a few cents worth of microtransactions. While at the same time, now his hashing power is now working against him. Because now with that hashing power that he has put into the network is strengthening the rest of the network so if he wants to continue attacking he has to continuously scale up this insane (laughs) ASIC uh, operational farm just for the sake of attacking the network not not for getting block rewards because there are no block rewards not to collect fees because there are no fees but to try to intercept a portion of the network because you could never attack the entire network because there is no continuous global state because of the cap theorem that we just went over
0: Okay, I like that. That was a really great response to some challenging questions. It was pretty good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I love that because this is new technology. It's a new approach. So it's very important to ask those questions and to elucidate it as much as possible. Because a lot of people get it wrong. So misinformation gets spread very, very quickly, as, as you know.
0: So let's go back before we were talking about where all of the transaction data was stored. And I think you're going to tell me that it's stored on the devices and what we don't have is this consistent global state. And so for that reason, it doesn't need to be stored in any one place.
1: Yeah, so it's exactly what you said. It's stored in kind of what we could call the cloud, the fog, just like a blockchain. Each individual device, of course, have their replicate database of the ledger itself. But we utilize something called snapshotting. It's literally you take a snapshot Of the current state of the ledger that is relevant. Let's say you take a snapshot of the ledger right now, all the balances, whose IOTAs belong to who person, etc. etc. And then you prune away the rest of the ledger that is no longer needed because you, as a simple IoT device, you don't give a fuck about the history. You just care about the validity of the current state.
0: I see what you're saying. So all you need to know is the current state. And all you need to do is store that, and that can be updated periodically as
1: needed. Yeah. And and because of the fact that it's partition tolerant, this can happen locally. So in one partition or or just one part of the network, they can do a snapshot because they are devices that don't have a lot of storage. So they do a snapshot, whereas other nodes of the network, they continue to carry the entire ledger. These we call perma nodes. keep the the entire history, just like in blockchain, but you wouldn't want to do that as an IoT device because, first of all, there is no reason for it. Second of all, because you don't have 200 gigabytes of storage to spend on just having the ledger. The only thing you need to know is the current state and that it's valid and continue from there. You don't care about the history because there is no utility for you as an IoT sensor or... Yeah.
0: We're slightly heterogeneous here, though, because now we have these perma nodes and these IOT devices, which are effectively SPV nodes, right? Yep. So is there some attack involving the perma nodes and the IOT devices? And what is the reason for keeping the history if it's not relevant to the IOT devices themselves?
1: Yeah, good question. So the nodes that would do the snapshotting would still be full nodes. So, So it's not like a light client. It's not like they are now at the mercy of the full nodes or the other full nodes or the permanodes for this terminology. So that part doesn't matter. You just do the snapshot and you're still a full node. It's just that you don't need the transactional history. You just need to know the current state and that's fine. But to your other question in regards to why should a permanent store it? there are two reasons one it may be that you simply care (laughs) like that's the that's the lowest hanging fruit but the more important is that you can be incentivized for this so this is very similar to you know sia storage and made safe these kind of ideas that are already out there that you are being incentivized paid for this because some audit firm or someone else might want to know the full history and therefore they're willing to pay for that information
0: I see. No, I, I can accept that as well. So one thing I'm wondering about is, so we've got millions of devices or hundreds of millions with millions and millions of transactions going through the network. How big is a transaction and what is the total uh, bandwidth required to support it? And are there situations where we're going to find bottlenecks in this
1: network? Very good question. So the first thing I would like to say is that it also goes back to what I meant about partition tolerance, because if you need to be continuously connected to the main tangle, such as you do in the blockchain, where you have to be synchronized with the network, then indeed you have a huge bandwidth consumption problem, which is the antithesis of Internet of Things devices, which is why we are talking about like using LoRa instead and mesh nets instead, because that's what the Internet of Things actually do. It's primarily mesh nets. keep the energy consumption low, because as you know, like low energy, Bluetooth and LoRa is insanely less energy consuming than Wi-Fi. So that's the first thing in regards to why we're partition tolerant, because this means that you only need to sync once per day. For instance, if you need to relay some data or some transactional history to the main network. So that's the first answer. And the other part of the question was if there was some bottlenecks in regard to this. And I would say that this is how we get rid of that bottleneck. Sure, at the end of the day, bandwidth will become the ultimate bottleneck. And that's why we say that at the end of the day, the law of physics will be the determinant here. Like With the hasher, each individual device can, in theory, do upwards of thousands of transactions per second individually. But that is dependent on... It having bandwidth. And of course, if you're using something like LoRa, you have very little amount of data that you can transact. So ultimately, bandwidth is the bottleneck here. At the end of the day, Li Fi, if, if you know of the term, yes. Yes, yeah. that yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, so that's the ultimate, ultimate bottleneck of IOTA scalability is the speed of light. Sadly, we can't, we can't hack the universe. To change the speed of light. So that will be the ultimate bottleneck.
0: Now, you said you've already been speaking with semiconductor manufacturers about this new hardware component. Yeah. So, who in particular and how have those conversations been going? And how did you
1: initiate it? Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, actually, interestingly, a lot of these come to us, straight up, they come to us because this is no longer a niche technology. Like blockchain has already become mainstream, as, as you are very well aware. Over the last couple of years so they're all trying to figure out like how can we position ourselves like what's our role within this space what are the opportunities in this space and what value can we add to our services so one of the main use cases for iota which is how the semiconductors get involved is fog computation and fog storage so are you familiar with the difference between cloud and fog no idea no okay so, so this is very very simple to understand so you know of course you, you know the cloud these are these huge data centers that are spread across the world which contains all of our data that we have in the cloud everyone knows about the cloud but as we are doing internet of things as we're moving more towards this ubiquitous computation storage and so on and so forth it moves further and further away from these central large data stations and more towards the edge of the network and of course covering the edge of the network is a lot harder than controlling just a very dense centralized area and so this is what is considered the fog and and this is just because of weather terminology it just continues so i think cisco was the ones that popularized this first so that's the fog the fog is essentially the cloud in a distributed fashion so you have smaller but more of them and geographically dispersed computational station, So that's fog computing and fog storage. And this is a very, very big deal because if you have tens of thousands or millions of sensors relaying data, you cannot send it directly to the cloud simply because again, laws of physics comes in and ruin the day and you have signal collisioning and you have interference. And I think everyone has experienced at least a few times that their neighbor are fucking up their Wi-Fi connection or when they connect Bluetooth, it interferes with their Wi-Fi and suddenly their internet isn't working properly. I'm quite sure everyone has experienced this. And you can imagine that times a million, if you have a million sensors all trying to send data at the same time to the cloud. So instead you have to find a way to spread this out, distribute this load of data. And that's where the fog comes in. So you have more computational stations placed strategically close to areas with sensors And so the data gets analyzed locally, and then it later gets relayed to the cloud after it has been condensed because it has already been analyzed. So here you have the issue of how do you incentivize the folk computational stations to care about these sensors? Because let's say you have a million sensors, these may be owned by a thousand different entities, like a thousand different stakeholders. And how are you going to, in a seamless fashion, as a fog computational station provider like Cisco, how are you going to make money of that? The problem today is that you can't use the old subscription service because that would be way too expensive. Every time a new sensor pops up, you would have to sign an agreement and do all kinds of this laborious bullshit. That doesn't work. And that's where IOTA comes in. That's where the machine to machine payment system comes in. So if the sensors themselves can simply pay the computational station, then you get rid of all the red tape, you get rid of all this expensive, inefficient stuff, and they can just pay directly. And here, of course, the semiconductors have no choice. They have to be able to offer a chip to the sensors and the computational stations that can actually accommodate this technology. And this is where we get reached out to by those players. Because they realize that they have to provide this. There is simply no way of getting around it. And the same thing goes for storage. Because as you, you alluded to earlier, these devices have very scarce abilities. They don't have a lot of storage. So they have to purchase storage if they they are continuously gathering data. Or bandwidth for that matter. So you have this necessity where this machine economy is completely inevitable. And in order for that to work, you have to make hardware That actually accommodates the software, and currently the only software on the world that accommodates this is IOTA, and that's why we are being reached out to. Rather than us like trying to pitch this crazy idea to them, they are completely aware of this already. I've got another question about
0: ASIC upgradability, right? So, say you've developed your nice little proof of work algorithm, and for some unforeseen reason you want to change it, how do you make sure that old devices are going to be compatible?
1: Yeah. Very good question. So this goes back to the, the big problem that is always around new technology. Like how do we standardize this? How do we come to a consensus as humans on the technology? Because we tend to suck at it. So what we have to do and then what we are working on right now is standardizing this protocol. So we are working with the standardization bodies on standardizing this because unless there's standardization, the problem you just mentioned occurs inevitably. It's just how technology has always been. So as soon as this has been standardized, as soon as the consensus among the humans has been on this is the hashing function, this is what we're going with, then it doesn't matter if someone comes up with a better integrated circuit that is slightly more efficient because the underlying hashing function is the same. So all devices will still be able to carry out their transactions. That's the first part of it. The other thing is what about all of the devices that already exists out there that do not have this hasher device i like this component like what about those devices and they have to rely on iota as it is right now they are limited there is no way around that just like kind of trying to play a very graphic intensive game of 2017 on your playstation from 1995 tough luck it just doesn't work it's it's a new realm it's a new paradigm And that's why it's so important to standardize this right now before the internet of things truly explodes into billions and billions and billions of devices.
0: So one thing we haven't discussed here is data integrity.
1: Yeah. So data integrity is one of the unique selling points of the distributed ledger in the beginning. This idea of having immutable data that no one can tamper with is the ultimate goal sort of for an age where we depend on big data and we rely on data for pretty much all of our decisions indirectly. So the blockchain simply cannot scale as we've gone over to accommodate billions and billions and billions of data packets being sent. Like you can't put all of those data packets on the blockchain because the blockchain can't even handle their own simple transactions. And the other problem with the blockchain is that it would be too expensive. Like try to imagine paying $0.50 or $0.60 just to have one data packet and short integrity. It just doesn't work. So the way that people up to now have been doing it is that they're doing it in intervals. So they're saving up a lot of data, and then they're hashing that data and making a Merkle root of that data, and then they put it onto the blockchain. And this, in theory, sure, it works for a proof of concept but it doesn't work in large-scale deployments. And it also has this problem of not being real-time. It's not fine granular. You can't ensure individual data packets. But because IOTA doesn't have the scaling and fee problems that the blockchain has, you can actually use it as a genuine data anchoring protocol. And this is immensely important because this means that all data from all kinds of sensors, all kinds of devices, machinery, manufacturing, and so on and so forth, supply chain you can guarantee that this data cannot be changed ever again as soon as it has been attached to the Tangle ledger. And this means you can start to build applications on top of that. You can start to optimize insurance. And I mean, that's a huge deal by itself. You, you can start to automate analytics, artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence is also a very interesting topic where, as you probably know, the way that Tesla uses artificial intelligence is that they use over-the-air update. So if one car is learning something, then it updates the rest of the car, so the entire fleet kind of has this new knowledge. But that means you have to trust those new learning sets that you receive in your car. But imagine a man in a middle attack, some crazy lunatic, that decides, hey, fuck this, I want to ruin someone's life, so I insert a false learning set, and then this car receives it, And instead of artificial intelligence, you suddenly have artificial insanity, but with data integrity, you can know for a fact, no, this data packet doesn't match the one that I am supposed to receive. So I don't accept it. And so you can start to build a new cybersecurity model, which will be insanely important in a world where the internet of things is kind of running everything from cars to infrastructure to e-health. Yeah, you get the idea. We we tend to think of the data integrity component of IOTA as at least as important as the transactional settlements. Most of the proof of concept we have been doing together with companies like Energy is around that. And it's just a very important topic. Hey David, this has been
0: absolutely fantastic, and you know you've been a real sport. It was it was a little bit adversarial at times, maybe a little bit more than it needed to be, but only because I really like your work.
1: No, no very, very, very good. I really appreciate uh, the discussion, and I, I really welcome those kinds of tough questions. And because we we have nothing to hide, like this is a completely nonprofit, open source, grassroots movement, and we we want to just make the best technology possible. So all sorts of input is always good.
0: Fantastic. Hey, thanks a bunch.
1: Nice call, man.
0: You've been listening to The Ether Review. I'm Arthur Falls. If you'd like to learn more about IOTA, head on over to iota.org. That's I-O-T-A dot O-R-G. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit etherreview.info.